invite you to take your Bibles and open to Mark chapter 15, Mark chapter 15. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 15 this morning, and uh, I love how this works out as we uh, come to the conclusion of Mark here, uh, speak this week and next week, and then uh, Pastor James is going to speak on a Sunday morning, and then uh, Pastor Phil Betts will be here to give a camp update and preach for us the last week in March, and then uh, we'll jump back into Mark, and Easter Sunday, we will hit the resurrection in Mark at the same time. So I'm thankful uh, through God's sovereignty and uh, some finagling on my part, like asking Pastor James to preach so we could have another week. That's <laughs> what pastors do. Uh, but as we come to the conclusion, we're, we're marching towards that resurrection, and uh, it works out well coming into the Easter season. If you found your way to Mark chapter 15, it's page 852 in the Pew Bible. Let's pray, and I'll read our passage this morning. Father, thank you that you are high and lifted up, that you are above us, Lord, but yet you condescend to know us in a personal way. Lord, as we come to your word this morning, I pray that you would use it to teach us, to correct us, to reprove us, and to, to train us, Lord, in righteousness, that we may be competent and equipped for every good work. Lord, I pray that your word would cut to the division of our heart and soul, our intents and our motivations, revealing, Lord, our sin, but also revealing your goodness to us and how you are at work within us. Lord, above all, I pray that your spirit would use your word to make us more like Jesus to bring you glory. We pray this in your name. Amen. Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 15. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a cons uh, consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For He perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. I love this time of year as spring comes, as things start to awaken from winter. Uh, you see already hints of new life uh, in the plants and the trees and just the warmer days. But there's also something else that comes this time of year that reminds me that spring is coming. The other day I got a notification on my phone that the Cubs had a preseason baseball game, spring training. Right? For every baseball team, even if you're not a baseball fan, uh, it's a sign that spring is on the way. 
And it's a sign of hope, right? Because every team thinks they have a shot when really they don't. (laughs) But as I was thinking about baseball and reading this passage here, my mind went to something that happened uh, almost 100 years ago. There was a trade that happened in baseball on January 5th, 1920. The Boston Red Sox traded a player for an approximate amount of $125,000 and several other $100,000 in loans to the New York Yankees. Now, this player had done very well. He had several seasons of hitting almost 20 home runs, which was a lot in the, 19, uh, in the early 1900s. And he was a pitcher, and he had led the team to three World Series titles. This player was George Herman Ruth, better known as Babe Ruth. And as legend goes, that the Boston Red Sox traded him because they thought he had reached his peak, that he couldn't do any more for them. And so they tried to get the most that they could for the player. $125,000, that was a lot in the early 1900s. Their owner also got $300,000 worth of loans, which actually he used towards financing his Broadway productions. <laughs> had nothing to do about baseball. And at the time, many in the media thought that the Boston Red Sox got the better end of the deal. Well, what happened following that trade? And so it goes. The year of the trade, as Babe Ruth went to the New York Yankees, he hit 54 home runs. The next year, he hit 59, which stood as the record until the early 60s and Roger Maris came along. And he won't run several World Series for the New York Yankees. In fact, he was part of a team that's perhaps known as the best team ever assembled. It's called Murderer's Row with several other well-known players. Following this trade, the New York Yankees, some with Babe Ruth and some without, went on to win 39 pennants and 26 World Series titles. The Boston Red Sox did not win a World Series title for 86 years. This is known as the Curse of the Bambino, which was broken in 2004. But it's interesting to read about this trade and about how at the time they thought at it was going to benefit one team more than the other. But as you look back, you realize how it benefited the other side much more than the other team. And looking back, many sports commentators would say that this was one of the most unfair trades in the history of all sports. But you didn't know what was going to turn out and what was going to happen with Babe Ruth, and that he was going to be perhaps the most mythical and legendary baseball player ever. One team got money, and the other team got perhaps the best player ever. You would say that that's an unjust trade, right? That it wasn't fair, that it wasn't equal. And you would maybe throw your hands up and say, come on now, especially if you were a a fan of a certain team. We want equality. We want fairness. We want justice. And as we look at something like a swap for one player for another player, the goal is to have it be equal in the mind of a sports person. But ultimately... It wasn't. Now, how does this baseball trade apply to our passage this morning? We're going to look here at these 15 verses and realize that there was a trade that happened. There was an exchange. There was a substitute. There was a swap. And it is perhaps the most unjust trade or substitute 
that has ever happened in the history of the world. In fact, it is the most unjust trade, the most unjust exchange for one person for another that has ever happened. As we look at Mark 15, verses 1 to 15, our big idea is this. And as we read, we see that King Jesus willingly suffers unjustly in the place of sinners like you and me. Remember, Jesus is the suffering servant king. And I say King Jesus because the phrase king of the Jews is going to be used several times here. And though it is used in spite and in mockery by Pilate and the other religious leaders, it really has a sense of truth to it. Jesus is the king. He is king of the Jews. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. And though it's used in a derogatory manner, it also has a hint of truth. King Jesus willingly suffers. He doesn't do it against his will, against his own desires, but he willingly suffers unjustly in the place of sinners like you and me. Jesus controls himself in the face of unjust accusations from Pilate and the high priests. Jesus also willingly is a substitute. He suffers unjustly. He sacrifices himself in the face of punishment that he does not deserve. But in this unjust suffering and accusation, Jesus again continues to demonstrate why he came. Mark 10, 45, Jesus says, I came to serve, not to be served, and to give my life as a ransom for many. The substitution of Jesus for Barabbas is a shadow of the greater reality that he is a substitution for you and I. That he has suffered the judgment of God in our place. For we are sinners who deserve that judgment. So let's look here at these two, uh, two ideas that reflect the fact that Jesus suffers willingly uh, for you and I. First off, Jesus controls himself in the face of unjust accusations. Verse, uh, chapter 15, verse 1. As soon as it was the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. So if you remember, this trial went on in the middle of the night. It was an unjust, crooked trial. It was not how things were supposed to happen, but it's what the religious leaders brought about. And so morning has come. The Jews themselves cannot condemn Jesus to death. They don't have that authority. With Roman rule, they can't, uh, they can't uh, work out capital punishment on their own. And so they need to take Jesus to Pilate. Pilate was the Roman governor or prefect uh, over this area. And so it was morning, and they got together and they said, let's take him to Pilate, Pontius Pilate. Verse two, and Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Here we are introduced to Pilate. Uh, Pontius Pilate was this man. He was a, a Roman governor. He was put in place by Caesar. His job was to keep the peace, to not cause headaches, to manage the situation so Rome didn't need to be bothered. His job was to keep the Jews in line, so trade could happen, so goods could be exported, so the economy could continue to grow, and that the, the empire of Rome could flourish. That was his job, <coughs> to keep everything under control. Pontius Pilate was a very pragmatic ruler. He didn't care necessarily about the ethics as long as it worked. And sometimes he was friendly for the Jews, so that he would have peace. Sometimes it was... No, it's my way or the highway, and I don't care. Pilate did whatever worked. 
he was a pragmatic, practical ruler who really sought to protect his own backside. (laughs) Because if he couldn't keep the peace, Rome would find somebody who would. And so therefore, Pilate would be gone. So they bring Jesus to Pilate. And Pilate asks him in verse 2, Are you the king of the Jews? Now we understand there must have been some other conversation that happened before this. I'm sure the chief priests and the others would come to Pilate and explain the situation. The other gospel writers flesh this out a lot more. Mark is very economical in his word choice and in his uh, conveying of the events. Jesus is taken to Pilate, and Pilate would say, why have you brought me, this man? What has he done? What has he done? And so what the Jews do here is very interesting because Pilate could care less that Jesus claims to be God. <laughs> that's a Jewish religious thing. Pilate would say, you guys figure that out. That, that's, that's your problem. But if somebody says that they are king instead of Caesar, well, then it becomes Pilate's problem. Because that's an attack on Rome. And so we see how the emphasis and the accusations of getting Jesus switched because the religious leaders were focusing on the fact that Jesus was God, that he claimed to be the Messiah, the Son of God. But all of a sudden, now we're talking about kingship and how Jesus is the king of the Jews because that's an affront and an attack on Rome. And Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? In one sense, yes, he is the king. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. He is sovereign over all creation. We understand that. But here he's speaking in a direct sense towards the the revolutionary insurrectionist attitudes that many of the Jews had of throwing off Rome. And so if you had one person who could be that that linchpin, that, that figurehead, right? The person to attach the movement to, to garner support and to raise the masses. Uh, that, that person was dangerous. In any insurrection or revolution, you have a figurehead that stands for much more than just themselves as an individual. You think of the American Revolution and George Washington. And he became this figurehead that, that led the revolution in a sense, but it was much more than just him, but he was, he was the face of it. Here, Pilate is thinking, this is Jesus, king of the Jews, and if he keeps garnering support and raising up the people, well, then I have a situation on my hands. Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, you have said so. Jesus, of course, is God, and he's very wise. He's very careful with his word choice. Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews. And Jesus responds with a simple, you have said so. Jesus doesn't answer the question. (laughs) But in not answering the question, he answers the question. In the other gospels, we read of a further account of Jesus and him interacting with Pilate and the discussion of truth. What is truth? And also of Jesus communicating with Pilate about his kingdom. And how Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. I am a king, but not in the sense that you think. One author said this, Jesus' response here in Mark's gospel of you have said so, its meaning is a likely qualified yes. Something like, this is true, but your idea of kingship is different than my own. 
Jesus says, you have said that I'm a king, but what you are saying, Pilate, you do not fully understand. We read in the other Gospels how Jesus talks about his kingdom not being of this world, that his kingdom is far greater than just a few thousand square miles uh, in the Near East. His kingdom is overall. His kingdom is pertaining the entire world and all the cosmos. So while Pilate has a very narrow view of this man and, and the accusations against him, Jesus says, you've said that I'm king of the Jews, but you don't really understand what you're saying. In John's gospel, we read of this, but here Mark truncates it with this simple statement. Jesus is a king and a king greater than Pilate can realize. Yet here he is submitting himself to the sinful whims of man to bring about his father's will to secure redemption. But again, those chief priests are still at it. Verse 3, and the chief priests accused him of many things. And we don't read exactly what, but my guess is most of them were probably lies or half-truths or exaggerations to make Jesus look guilty before Pilate. Verse 4, and Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? I'm sure Pilate is used to having people who are accused before him pleading their case again and again and again, saying, I'm not guilty, I'm not guilty. No, let me explain this, 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 and this. Jesus simply stands there. Jesus doesn't say anything. He makes no further answer, verse 5, so that Pilate was amazed. Mark uses that term often, amazed or in amazement. It doesn't mean that Pilate believed, but there was something happening here that has caused Pilate to stop and think, this guy's different. Here is somebody who is accused of all these things, but yet he is not fighting back. He is not clinging and clamoring for anything, but rather is silent. Again, here we read of Jesus. As that sheep before its shears is silent, he is silent again here. Pilate is amazed that Jesus is not defending himself or seeking a way out of his current circumstances. It's not necessarily a belief, but it's a beginning realization that Jesus truly is different. Here is the context in the setting. Jesus is accused unjustly, but yet Jesus continues to control himself. Jesus is settled in his Father's sovereign will. And Sinful man cannot comprehend it. Here's Pilate, and he's saying, what's going on? How can, how can you just stand here and take this? Pilate seems baffled that Jesus would refuse to defend himself despite his apparent innocence. Pilate is oblivious that Jesus truly has submitted himself to his Father's will and that it's God's plan that he would be delivered over to suffering and death as a ransom for sins. Jesus did not go kicking and screaming to the cross. But Jesus endured unjust accusations. How many of you like to endure unjust accusations? How many of you, the moment someone speaks something against you, you're already formulating arguments in your, your mind? How many of you are, have those arguments played out like in the shower and you always win those arguments, right? <laughs> That's our sinful nature. That's our sinful desires. And in a sense, to we are, we are hardwired for the, 
the idea of justice, but our sin nature corrupts that desire, and we just want to protect ourselves. <laughs> but Jesus, being the perfect Son of God and perfect Son of Man, even though he had no sin or guilt within him for anything that he does, receives the accusations, understanding that this is part of his Father's plan. He willingly submits himself to this ridicule, to these accusations. I think there's something for us to learn here. It doesn't always benefit us to try and argue with other people. I don't think it benefits us sometimes when, when we, yes, might be being treated unjustly to, in a sense, uh, do all that's within us to fight back. Now, I'm not saying you let yourself be walked over, but what I'm saying here is there's a bigger picture in mind to understand what is happening and to realize that Jesus suffered and sometimes the battle's not worth it. <laughs> if you're answering a fool according to his folly, Proverbs says. But here as Jesus suffered, and, and in First Peter, Peter talks about this as well too, that we suffer as Jesus suffered. To realize that the sinfulness of the world and individuals around us, they won't understand. They, they, won't, they won't get the truth of God's word and of the gospel. And so at some points, we just receive it and we move on. But here Jesus willingly suffers and submits himself to this unjust accusation without flying off the handle. But this just escalates here into our next point, in that Jesus sacrifices himself in the face of unjust punishment. Verse 6 is some more context for us by Mark. Now at the feast, that is the feast of Passover, he, that is Pilate, used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. Now, there's not a lot of record of this, uh, in, uh, in extra-biblical writings, but we see this uh, pattern um, recorded several hundred years after Jesus, and it's recorded in the Gospels. And so I think it's pretty safe to say, as God's Word records it, it's something that has happened. But this was more of a side thing that Pilate did. This wasn't an official Roman position, but it's something that Pilate did, kind of as a you know, you know, you know, get-out-of-jail-free card promotion to garner uh, support from the Jewish population. Around this feast, he used to ask for at least, he, he would ask them, who do you want? You know, one person who is guilty. I'll, I'll issue them clemency and they, could, they can go free. And among the rebels in prison, there, was, there were several people, these rebels committed insurrection. They were actively working against the Roman power, causing strife, riling people up to rebel against Rome, who had committed murder. So th these are not nice guys. These aren't guys who are like, yay, go Jews, boo Rome. This is like, no, we hate Rome. We're going to cause insurrection. We're going we're gonna to kill some people. Probably in a riot, they attacked some guards and killed some guards. And there's a man called Barabbas. And it's really interesting here. Barabbas is actually his surname. If you understand how the term bar works, you've heard of, of Peter, right? Simon bar Jonah. Uh, so that bar means, that word bar is Hebrew for, for son of and there, the abbess is actually Abba. You cry Abba, Father. So there's really interesting, not necessarily playing words here, but in God's sovereignty, Barabbas, his, that name actually means son of the father. Isn't it interesting how the true son of the father is taking a place for the son of the father who's actually the sinner? The second Adam is fulfilling the role that the first Adam failed at. 
Barabbas, this man who is a murderer, who is probably not the nicest guy around, is in prison. And the crowd comes up in verse 8 and begin to ask Pilate as he, to do as he usually did for them. So the crowd comes up and says, Pilate, release someone for us. Release someone for us. For us. And he answered them, well, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Pilate's thinking, if this man is the king and the people want this, they're going to want this guy. They're going to want Jesus, right? And Pilate's mind that that would be the logical conclusion. They come up, they're asking Pilate, hey, we want you to release somebody. Oh, so you guys want this guy who's king of the Jews, right? You all like him, but no. Verse 10, he understood what was happening. Pilate is no dummy. (laughs) Pilate understands politics. Pilate understands how people work. Verse 10, for he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. Pilate sees completely through the chief, chief priests. He knows that Jesus is innocent, but yet he sees through the envy and the jealousy that the religious leaders have towards Jesus. Pilate is no dummy. He can see it. And he knows why Jesus is there because of the jealousy and the envy of the religious leaders. But even in seeing this, Pilate doesn't do the right thing. Verse 11, but the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. Imagine this crowd before uh, Pilate's compound and Pilate is standing there with Jesus saying, do you want me to release the king of the Jews? And the priests are are mingling among the crowd. They're saying, no, we want Barabbas. We want Barabbas. Riling up the people. Riling up the people. And so they started to chant, Barabbas. We want Barabbas. And Pilate again said to them in verse 12, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? What do you want me to do with Jesus then? Pilate, being no dummy, is is still uh, subject to the will of the people and the mob. He's got this mob in front of him who are chanting, who are getting riled up. And so he's like, okay, what do you want me to do with Jesus? And what is their answer? Crucify him. Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? Here is where Pilate is implicated in the death of Jesus. Pilate sees through the religious leader's envy and jealousy in seeking to kill Jesus. And he also understands that Jesus is unjustly accused, how he is innocent. Because he even says, what evil has he done? Pilate asks the question, what evil has he done? What wrong has he done? Pilate sees that Jesus has done nothing wrong. If Pilate had a spine, he would say, okay, well, I'm going to put him away and I'm going to release him later because he hasn't done anything wrong. No, he turns it over to the mob and he says, okay, what do you want me to do with him then? Crucify him. The end of verse 14, and they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd. Not Pilate standing for the truth. Not Pilate doing what he should have done. Not Pilate waiting and giving more time to think about it. But Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, release for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, the idea of whipping him. And it is terrible. And we'll talk more about how he suffered as we look at the crucifixion. But it would have been awful. Terrible. Being whipped with leather straps that often contain pieces of bone or metal, ripping the flesh off his back. Mocking him, beating him. They scourged Jesus. 
and he delivered him to be crucified. Jesus sacrifices himself in the face of unjust punishment. Pilate's goal is to satisfy the crowd. Pilate just wants to come out politically ahead. The death of one Jewish religious man is better than having a whole mob on his hand to deal with. So he doubles down and he releases Barabbas for the people and he is set about to crucify Jesus for the religious leader. Here's Pilate. He satisfies the demands of the crowd. He satisfies the demand of the religious leaders in his mind. Hey, all in a good day's work here. But what is shown here is Jesus's substitution. Whereas Barabbas was guilty, he was a murderer, he was a rebel, he was an insurrectionist. He was the one who deserved death. And here is Jesus who did not deserve death at all. He was sinless, he was perfect, he was innocent. But this exchange is a shadow, it's a picture of what God has done for us. Jesus sacrifices himself in the face of unjust punishment for you and I. So as we look at this passage, three points of application here. First, we must rest in God's sovereignty because his enemies do not play fair. Jesus submitted himself to his father's will. And as we look at this passage, I hope we're not upset, but our insides understand how unjust this really was. And that should cause us alarm and anger to a certain degree. Here's an innocent man being judged guilty. That's not fair. That's not right. It's okay for us to say, my blood's starting to boil a little bit. That, that's a good response. But we understand that we must rest in God's sovereign plan here because the enemies of God do not play fair. And as we look at the world around us, we can see all kinds of injustice going on and injustice towards Bible-believing Christians. And while that should cause us pause and, oh, come on, we understand the world in which we live in is a sinful world. And we need to rest in God's sovereign plan that in the end, ultimately, he wins and he will dispense judgment. Secondly, Jesus being king means something far greater than just an earthly ruler. His kingdom is not of this world, though it includes this world. His kingdom far exceeds what we can think and comprehend. And so while we might think of this as a loss for Jesus, really this is part of God's plan to secure the greater reality of Jesus' kingship. But Jesus being king means something far greater than just being an earthly ruler. He is sovereign over all. He's even sovereign over these individuals here who are seeking to put him to death. And the greatest application here, number three, and I already mentioned it a little bit, is that Jesus and Barabbas are a shadow picturing every sinner in Jesus. In a sense, you are Barabbas. I am Barabbas. I'm a sinner. We are rebels. We have desired to live life our own way. We have rebelled against the God of the universe and we have sinned against him. And we are in jail and we deserve punishment in hell forever. But yet in God's sovereignty and his goodness and his mercy and his love, the fact that we are sinners 
We have rebelled against God. We have lied. We have stolen. We have lusted. We have committed adultery. We have hated. We have stolen. All those 10 commandments, whether physically we've done it or we've desired it in our hearts, we have broken God's law and we deserve punishment. We deserve condemnation. You deserve to burn in hell forever. All of us deserve to burn in hell forever. And God is completely just in sending us all to hell forever. But God doesn't do that. God provides his son, Jesus Christ. God understands in his sovereign, gracious will that sending his son, redeeming people for his glory is proper and okay and good. We don't deserve to be redeemed. We don't deserve to be let out of that judgment, but yet God does so to bring himself more honor and glory. You and I deserve punishment. In a sense, we are all locked up in prison awaiting our execution. But Jesus shows up and says, no, I'm here and I will take their punishment for them. But sir, you've done nothing wrong. You've not sinned. I know. Sir, do you know this person? Yes, I know them. Do, have they done anything to deserve this from you? No, they're not. In fact, they are the ones who've rebelled against me. I'm the subject, in a sense, of their sin. I'm the victim of why they are put in jail. Right, sir? But you've come to endure their punishment so that they can go free? Yes. It's the most unfair exchange ever in the history of the world. But yet it's the very heart of the gospel is that Jesus suffered the righteous for the unrighteous. We are Barabbas. And we are set free only through Jesus. Jesus takes the punishment and we'll read about that in these next several sections here of the crucifixion. But get it through your mind. You deserve to be in jail and you deserve to be enduring, receiving the great pain and anguish and suffering that Jesus took. The great exchange. As we are Barabbas and we are the ones in the crowd yelling crucify him, Jesus willingly submits himself and exchanges places. Now as we understand the gospel this offer is made to all. Anyone can come and believe in Jesus. But you must come. You must realize your sin and cry out in repentance and confession. Say, I'm a sinner and I need Jesus. This is not blanketly applied to everyone. Everyone's not going to heaven. Some people are going to go to hell. But the call for you this morning is this, is to respond in faith and repentance in Jesus when you realize that you are helpless and that you are condemned to death, cry out and find forgiveness in Jesus and realize that he has taken your place in this great exchange. And it's wonderfully appropriate as we look at this passage this morning that we transition into celebrating the Lord's table together as we reflect on the death of Jesus Christ in our place. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come and to look at your word to realize how we are sinners and we are condemned. 
Lord, but in your sovereign grace and goodness, you've sent Jesus Christ to take our place. Lord, just as Barabbas was a murderer, we are murderers. We hate. We are adulterers. We are thieves. We, we steal. We lie. We cheat. We speak falsehoods. Lord, we seek our own desires over you. Lord, but yet you've sent your son to endure the punishment on our part. Lord, as we come to the table now, Lord, help us to reflect and give thanks upon your goodness to us in Christ. The great exchange, his robes for mine. The one who knew no sin, you made sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. Pray in his name.